0: We're going to spend some time this morning back in the book of Revelation, which is what we've been studying now for quite a while as a church. It's the final book of our Bible. <clears throat> and we're in chapter, chapter 16 already, so we're kind of bearing down on those final chapters of, of this wonderful book written by the Apostle John under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the first century. Are you tracking with me? Speaking largely about things that were are thousands of years in the future from John's perspective. Still in the future for us, but right around the corner. And um, nevertheless, while it is both an ancient book speaking about future things, it has a ton of application for your life right now in the month of June in 2019. And so uh, the message today is, is a little bit... I would say almost like a kind of a hard-hitting message and a bit of a shocking message, but I think there's a lot of joy and hope to be found in it. Let me start off by just asking you some, some questions. And if these apply to you, you're even welcome to shout out a response if you would like. So my first question is, how many speeding tickets would it take for you to finally stop speeding? Just think about that. Three, five, ten. Would it take you losing your license, paying $3,000 a month in insurance? Just think about it. How many speeding tickets would it take for you to finally stop speeding? How many years in jail would it take for you to finally stop stealing? If that was an issue for you, you like to steal things. How many years would you have to be given before you're like, okay, I've learned my lesson, enough's enough, it's not worth it, I'm going to stop taking other people's things. How many failed classes would it take for you to finally stop being a lazy student? Like How many, how many repeated semesters, how many repeated years? We used to joke in Bible college, there were some people that had crammed a one-year certificate into three years. How much punishment does it take for God to dispense upon sinful people before they finally are like, okay, we repent? How much? Now, you would think that everybody would have like a breaking point, that if God just poured on a certain amount of judgment, that everybody at some point would be like, okay, enough's enough, I repent. And some would just need a little bit of a push some would need a whole lot of punishment, but you would, you would kind of think, yeah, I think everybody would have a certain breaking point where they would finally say, uncle, you know, I surrender, enough. But we look at the Bible and we're like, that's not always true. Think of Pharaoh. Remember him? God punished his people again and again through a Series of plagues. And finally he let them go, but then he he still wasn't repentant. He chased them out into the Red Sea. Some people will never ever repent. And in the future, as we study the book of Revelation, we discover that there will be some people who will be eternally damned because they will never, ever, right up to the end, they will never, ever repent. No matter how much judgment God pours out, they will not repent. And so what Revelation illustrates for us is the abject arrogance of humanity. How arrogant we are. In the face of God's glory and God's wrath. In the face of God's holiness and awe being displayed in the world present and in the world future. In the face of God's wrath being poured out. And his wrath is long-suffering. Still, some will be like, no, we're not going to have it. We will not surrender. Now, I, I hope that you will not be among them. Okay, so this is a little bit of a warning, a little bit of an opportunity to do some checkups in your own heart and mind. But at the same time, and primarily, it reminds us of this biblical truth that our righteous God will judge and finally destroy his enemies. Our righteous God, that word's there deliberately, because he's not a vindictive God, he is a righteous God. Our righteous God will, he will judge and finally destroy his enemies. And so as we enter into the final chapters of Revelation, we see God's handling of evil after millennia of patience in the face of human sinfulness. After waiting hundreds, thousands of years for people to repent. Finally, in the future, God will be like, okay, time's up, time's up. I'm going to start pouring out eternal wrath. So why is this good news, by the way? Why is this good news? It's good news because it reminds us and illustrates for us that God's judgment is actually perfect judgment. And I want to talk about this a little bit more for you because I, with you today, because I think, That at times, when we think of God's judgment or wrath, we kind of like, we we pull back, we balk at it, we try to maybe excuse God's behavior to people who may not initially appreciate it. And what we're going to see today is that God's wrath is actually perfect wrath. God's judgment is actually perfect judgment. So let's read this. I'm just going to read the whole chapter for us and then we'll kind of pull it apart and try to understand it and seek some application in the text. So here's what it says in Revelation 16, beginning with verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, we already met them, seven being the number of perfection, go out and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So these bowls are symbolic of God's judgment. Picture seven cereal bowls, and each of them is filled with a measure of God's wrath. Now, notice the fact that there's seven of them. Whatever's going to be poured out is perfect and complete judgment. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. We met the beast earlier, maybe an individual, probably some system that represents everything that hates God's guts and the beast, the second beast, the antichrist all exist to steal glory from God and to destroy that which God has otherwise created. And those that are marked, I'm not so convinced it's a literal mark on the forehead, but it means they're They've chosen to be owned by that system or owned by those individuals. Now experience the wrath of God. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea. And it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that is in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water. And they became blood. Notice how God is like hemming people in. They need water to survive. He pollutes the seawater. He pollutes lakes. He pollutes rivers he's he's we would say he's tightening the screws he's making it harder and harder to live in rebellion against him and i heard the angel in charge of the waters saying just are you o holy one who is and who was for you brought these judgments For they have shed, that is the unbelievers, have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and they have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. Just maybe put a little mark under that word. Why? Because in our culture, we've seen a radical shift away from this notion that if you do something wrong, you deserve some sort of commensurate judgment. Into a, if you did something wrong, it must be mommy and daddy's fault. Or it must be a lack of education. Or it must be a chemical imbalance. Or it must be that you've received prejudice or discrimination in our culture. It's everyone else's fault. And so we don't like to talk much about deserving anything. And trust me, it's affecting schools and employers and churches. Where it's like you you, you feel like you're some sort of a weirdo if you suggest, no, if you do that, you actually deserve to lose your job. If you do that, you deserve to go to jail. If If you do that, you deserve to fail. That's like gonzo. And it's happened very fast in our culture. But the Bible still speaks of punishment commensurate to the sins you've committed. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl in the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. And they were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed. Notice their response. They're being punished. What do they do? They cursed the name of God, who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl in the throne of the beast, And its kingdom was plunged into darkness. And people gnawed their tongues in anguish. And did they repent? No. They cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. And its water was dried up. To prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, that is the devil, And out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. By the way, is anybody making the connections here? What does this sound a lot like? It sounds a lot like the plagues that were poured out on Egypt thousands of years before these events will take place. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle, on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. You know what that's called? <clears throat> that's called a parentheses. And what's the purpose of this parentheses? So you wouldn't just read this to know what might happen in the future but so that you might read it in order that your life might be changed in the present so that you might consider whether or not you are living a pure and righteous life before the Lord. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and a great earthquake such as there had never been seen since man was on the earth. So great was the earthquake. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great. That is a city that was known in history for their rebellion and their evil against God to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, how great? About 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people and they cursed God for the plague of hail because the plague was so severe. Seven bowls of wrath are poured out upon the world in the future. And those seven bowls, if there were six of them, maybe we couldn't argue this. If there were five, we couldn't argue that maybe this is the point being made. But because there's seven, they symbolize perfect justice in the face of sin. So you have an amount of sin that's been committed and a number of people that have transgressed against God. It's like, well, how's God going to deal with all that? It's like God's going to deal with it Perfectly. Now, we are we live in a culture that on some level seeks a certain measure of justice through our court systems, and certainly would at least say 100% they're committed to justice, 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 where if someone's abused or misused, well, we got to justly deal with that. But sometimes, even if you're well-intentioned, you mess up. Sometimes people are falsely accused. Sometimes people receive too much punishment. Sometimes they receive too little punishment. A man, a Canadian man by the name of Ivan Henry spent twenty seven years of his life in prison in Canada for a crime he did not commit. Now you you can't give that back to someone. You can't say, oh we, we falsely imprisoned you. The, the evidence now shows you didn't do it. Uh, we're going to add 27 years to your life. You You never get that back. You only have one life to live. And so it is very sad when you hear on occasion that someone was falsely imprisoned for a crime that they did not commit. We don't always get justice right. Other times, someone is clearly guilty. But some slick lawyer or maybe a false witness or some procedural glitch in the legal system means that that person gets gets away without paying for their crime. We, we strive for justice, but we're not always just. Maybe if you are in a position of authority, uh, you're a boss, you are... A parent. You're in a position of spiritual leadership. You can probably think of times when you're like, yeah, I tried to be just, but I wasn't. I think I overdid it there or I didn't respond quick enough to that situation. We aim for justice, but we, we don't always hit the target. But what we're learning about God is that God never falsely convicts. He never gets justice wrong. He's never too heavy handed. He never overreacts. Anything God does in the realm of wrath or judgment is absolutely perfect. The sinfulness of man is very great. But the justice of God is even greater. God will never over or under punish. God will never let someone get away with it unless reconciliation has been sought through the all-sufficient death of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you consider that, here's like some good news we could share with people. We could say to anyone in this place or outside of this place that's not comfortable with the idea of God being judgmental, that's not comfortable with the idea of God being wrathful, we could say to them with great accuracy, well, you know what? If you never sin, you'll never have to worry about it. You'll never have to worry about it. So if, if you don't sin, don't sweat it. Don't worry about it, because God is not going to punish you for sin you didn't commit. And we can kind of work that one up a little bit. Say that that's fair, isn't it? God doesn't overpunish; he doesn't underpunish. But but the problem is. When we say to people, you know, God will never judge the innocent. He'll never, ever judge the innocent. Is that true or false? It's true. God will never, ever judge the innocent. But the problem is nobody falls into that category. Romans 3.23 is pretty explicit on this. It says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone. So you may not be the greatest sinner that's ever lived, there's going to be people out there that are much more skillful at sinning than you are. That sin in a much bigger way than you do. But all of us sin. And what we, what we often do is we play that little comparison game. Say, well, yeah, but, but my sin is not as great as her sin. And she's like, well, that might be true. But my sin is not as great as his sin. And there's always someone you can find out there that's a greater sinner than you are. And there's always someone out there that seems like a much lesser, a lesser sinner than you are. This seems to do everything right. But God's like, no, no, everybody sins. And to the degree that we rebel against God and don't repent, God's judgment and justice will be perfect. Now I like to think about the world I live in, and kind of pay. I pay a lot of attention to the Bible, but I also pay a lot of attention to people, and I pay a lot of attention to myself because I I don't want I don't want to be I don't want to be like a lemming that just follows the crowd. I, I don't want to be the guy that says, "Okay, well that's what everybody says, so it must be true." I want to analyze and assess the messages that I'm hearing. Consciously and subconsciously all the time, and so so should you, and I know many of you are very skilled at this you 're like paying attention to political decisions and educational decisions and social decisions, and you you can see them for what they are and If you look out there you'll, you'll notice that in our world it's very much of like a live and let live mindset. I was talking to one of the construction workers this week, and he 's like, "You know how hard it is to find good employees." And to train people in a live and let live world. You know how hard it is? Because the new guy shows up in the job and you know what his mindset is? It's a privilege for you to have me here. And I'll do what I want. And I'll work for as long or as short of a time as I want. And you can never fire me. It's like, you can't punish. You can't discipline. I said, let's call the guy out. Oh, you can't do that. Just tell the guy, you know, he's, he's company. He's to clean up his... Oh. And this is... like People are actually under pressure not to say anything. Teachers in a lot of public schools today. You know, in many public schools, you no longer refer to a teacher and a student because that's authoritative. You know, everybody's friends. Hey, friends, over the announcement. Hello, friends. Welcome to school this morning. You see your principal in the hallway. Oh, hello, friend. We're all like equal. It's even Stephen. There's no authority. Live and let live. We're just, what are you doing? Why are you not teaching me? Well, I'm not your teacher. I'm just guiding and coaching and facilitating and trying to fan into flame the inner you, which is super awesome, isn't it? There's no right or wrong. You can do whatever you want, whenever you want, however many times you want, because that's a human right. And after all, we're into freedom, and freedom means unfettered access to anything and everything that I want. If I want it, not only should I get it, but I deserve for you to give it to me. This is like normal. It wasn't normal even 50 years ago. But it's normal, especially in the West. I can't speak for all other countries. But in the West, it's normal. And as such, when you're preaching on God judging people, like, what in the world? What, What right does he have to judge me? And if he does, he must be a vindictive God, an evil God, an archaic God, an unjust God. It's like, nope, God's never unjust. His judgment is perfect. He only punishes sin, and he never makes a mistake in doing it. He's never like, "Oh, I didn't have the, all the information. Sorry about, you know, that tw- those 27 years in hell." No. You know, if you're anything like me, it probably makes you angry when someone blatantly gets away with some heinous sinful act. Extreme examples being people that abuse or molest children and they get away with it. it's like, are you kidding me? Or someone that murders another person or a drunk driver. It's like they, they get away with it. But then we start to think about ourselves. We're like, well, yeah, but why should I get away with my sin? Why should I get away with my sin? And the answer to to that is, I shouldn't get away with my sin. We should all be punished for our sin. And that's like the baseline to the gospel. You can't just skip to God loves you and Jesus died for your sins and he's super awesome, wants to make your life successful. Let's get some Jesus going here. People have to come to a point where they realize they have a pretty significant problem. It's innate. It's innate. They have a a spiritual disease. It's a huge problem. And, And they aren't owed anything by God. But through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through the payment of Jesus Christ, Jesus appeasing the eternal perfect wrath and judgment of God by dying in your place, you now receive an invitation to be pardoned for your sin. And reconciled to God based upon the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ on your behalf. Do you see why this is, do you see why it's important now that we defend what we call penal substitutionary atonement? That Jesus was actually penalized as a substitute for your sins so that your sin might be covered? Do you see why this is important? It's because of the perfect judgment and justice of God. And yet there are preachers even in our own province saying, Oh, no, that's not what Jesus did. He just set like an incredible, like unbelievable example of personal self-sacrifice and passivity in the face of sin. That's what Jesus did on the cross. Well, he did that. He set an incredible example of self-sacrifice to be sure, but he also accomplished something. He was penalized, not for his own sin, but for your sin, so that you might be reconciled to God. And, and God, God, God's character just disallows God from saying, "Ah, you know what, I'm going to change the rules. I'm just going to tell everybody, you're all forgiven. We don't need a Jesus on a cross. I'm just going to declare it. You're all forgiven. That would, if God were to do that, here's what you need to know. That would actually violate the essence of who God is. As a God of perfect righteousness and perfect holiness. So you say, God can do anything he wants. No, he can't. No, that's false. God cannot do anything he wants. God cannot do anything that is outside of his character. God can't cease to exist. God can't sin. God can't choose for a few hours not to be holy. Holy. God can't say, you know what, this whole eternality thing is getting a little old. I'm going to set myself an expiry date. No, God cannot do anything outside the boundaries of his character. And therefore, God cannot overlook sin because he's a righteous God. But he's also a loving God. And so he provides this ingenious way for us to be forgiven by sending the Lord Jesus to die in our place. So here's some things we need to take away and to consider so we need to take them away personally and i think we need to do a really good job just teaching these things to the current generation and to the next generation here's the first one stop blaming god stop blaming god for your own sin for human sin for human depravity for taking too long to judge evil, whatever it might be, stop blaming God. God's actions are always perfect. If they're not, you can't trust them. But God's actions are always perfect. They truly are. Secondly, take personal responsibility for your own actions. Take personal responsibility for your own actions. If you sin, guess whose fault it is? It's your fault. Your parents may not have helped. The church you grew up in may not have been super helpful. The government might not be helpful. They may have tempted or persuaded or, 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 but we need to each take personal responsibility for our own sins. And third, how simple is this? Just do what he asks. When we do what God asks, we avoid judgment and sin, even in the life of a believer who's been forgiven eternally, God still punishes us. Read the book of Hosea. God still disciplines us because he doesn't want us to think, well, now that we're forgiven, we can just kind of do whatever we want. He wants us to respond to his grace through a life of holiness and worship. Said another way, God judges because his enemies deserve it. There's that word. God judges because his enemies Deserve it. Now we all start out as God's enemies. I've had a many, many meaningful conversations with with uh, Muslims, and there's obviously points of agreement, and there's many, many points of disagreement. One of the most fundamental points of disagreement is they believe people are born pure and innocent. We believe that people inherit. S- the sin nature from the first guy ever to live. Who was that? Adam. And so we have a sin nature. And then we, when we come into consciousness, guess what we do? We just start to display it with our thoughts, with our words, with our deeds. And we become very creative and very persistent at displaying our sin. The Bible teaches that we start out as God's enemies, but through Christ, we are invited to surrender ourselves. If we do, we are pardoned based upon the blood of Jesus, and then we are reconciled to God. So there's there's no joy, of course, in thinking about other people's destruction. But, but there is a sense of justice that helps us to see why the guilty are punished. It's, it's the same sort of thing. How can you be a Christian soldier on a battlefield with a gun? And let's say your enemy is someone that has gone around killing innocent people and stealing people's property and burning people in furnaces. How, how do you justify pulling the trigger? Do you find joy in that? No. No. Do you find happiness in that? No. Do you delight in that? No. You pull the trigger because it's just. God will pull the trigger not because he delights in the downfall of the wicked, but because it's just. It's right. And in the same way as believers who've had our lives radically altered by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, We're not like, all right, the Lord takes down the beast. Evildoers are going to be punished, wringing our hands in glee. We're like, it's right. It's just. It's perfect justice. But it could be us. Here's what it says in Romans 5.10. Pay attention to the first few words. For if, while, what does that word mean? While... We were enemies, not after we ceased being God's enemies. But while we were in a state of rebellion against God, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Here we have God's reconciliation of humanity by and through the instrument of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we've been reconciled. Now here, we be saved refers to the ongoing process of sanctification. So salvation is not just the punctiliar point in time when you were justified, but it's an ongoing process of being conformed to the image and likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all part of the salvation continuum in scripture. It, now think about this. There's three points in this passage I read for you this morning that paints a pretty bleak picture of how how people are actually God's enemies. So we have seven acts of judgment pictured as bowls poured out on sinful man. And you're like, okay, what is the response going to be? So look at verse nine and then look at verse 11 and then look at verse 21. Here's what it says. I'll just reread these for you. Verse 9. They cursed God's name. They did not repent and give him glory. Verse 11. They cursed God for their pain, even though it was a result of their sin. They did not repent of their deeds. Verse 21. They cursed God because of the plague. What does this illustrate? oh, is this just a select group of extra evil people? Well, yeah, they're pretty evil. But it illustrates the wickedness of the human heart, which says, I will not repent. Now, some of us might have been really, really stubborn growing up. And we had to be disciplined over and over and over again before we stopped doing it. Maybe some of you had to lose your license before you stopped speeding. Or maybe some of you did time in jail before you stopped stealing. Or you had to lose your house and you went bankrupt before you stopped spending other people's money. Or maybe you lost your marriage and then another marriage before you stopped being unloving and disrespectful. There's consequences to our sin. You'd hope that at some point you're like, okay, I give up. This is not working. The hardness of the human heart guarantees this, that apart from a divine work of grace, you will not repent. You will not. God judges the world through similar things that he judged Egypt with. He gave them sores. He polluted salt water. He polluted fresh water with blood. He poured on some heat. He then brought darkness. He gave them drought. He gave them earthquakes. He does on a global scale what he did on a localized scale to Egypt. And people still don't repent. Now, God's judgment, of course, leads to an Egyptian exodus for a remnant of believers that repented of their sins and followed the Lord. And in the future, it will lead to an eternal exodus for those that have remained faithful to Christ through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there is an exodus in the past, and there's an exodus in the future that a remnant of believers will be taken from the masses of those that continue to, fail to surrender to the Lord. And in fact, the text suggests that what is going to happen is even in the face of all this, not only are they verbally cursing God, we curse you, God, we curse you, God. Not only are they like, we're not going to repent, we're not going to repent, but they come up with this like awesome plan. They're like, you know what we should do? Here's an awesome plan. God's destroying us. He's wrecked the water. He's brought about great heat. Many of us have died. You know what we're going to do? Let's all get together and take God down. And so, the Bible describes that the nations from the east, so kind of hard to attack Israel from the west because there's water there. They come in from the east, and the east in biblical thought represents the godless nations that surrounded Israel. So in the future, the godless The river Euphrates dries up, it says. And the godless seek to attack the people of God. And again, we can go back and forth, whether it's literally going to happen in that geographical location or whether it's symbolic of evil massing itself against God. But the evildoers get together and they come and they seek to wage a battle against God on the plains of Armageddon. Now, Armageddon is a literal place there's a place in northern central Israel called Megiddo. Archaeologists, I've been there. Archaeologists are, have discovered 26 or 27 layers of destroyed city at Megiddo. That's how many times built up and destroyed, built up and destroyed, built up and destroyed. It hasn't Nobody's lived there for like over a thousand years. But in the past, it was a prime place of military occupation. Remember King Josiah? The little boy king that grew up, that's where he was killed. And in the Greek, Mount Megiddo means Armageddon. And if you stand on Megiddo, you're up in the ruins and you look out, there is a massive, like as far as the eye can see, plain of fields, crops, all out in front of them. You could fit probably the entire Earth's population in that, on those plains if you'd want. So it could be a literal battle that would take place at that specific location. But regardless, the Bible says Armageddon. We even use that in—I mean, there's movies called Armageddon. We we use it to refer to global destruction. But it comes from this passage where the Bible tells in the future, evildoers will rally together, like, "Let's take God down! Who, who, who? Let's do it!" And it's laughable. It's ridiculous. God's just like, "Squish! You're done." You're done. And he wipes them out. But it again illustrates human wickedness. Maybe if we all get together, hey everybody, God's pretty tough, right? Anybody agree? Let me hear it. Is he tough? kind of mean too, isn't he? What if we all get together and attack him at once? It's ridiculous. God's the infinite. He could just crush the whole globe. He's not afraid of a Few tens of millions of enemies were like germs crushed under his feet. Very bad idea to try to attack and oppose the things of God. And so the fundamental takeaways are we must choose to surrender ourselves to God. And if we don't, we are the greatest of fools. And God enables us to choose him through the act of grace, through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, through the call of the gospel to repent. So the call is going on right now. Are you hearing it? Here it is right now. You ready for this? God is calling you to repent of your sins and trust him, the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you? Will you? Will you then live the rest of your life for him? maintaining ongoing cycles of confession to the Lord as you become aware of how innately wicked you, in fact, are apart from Jesus. And and, and at the same time, will you worship him because he is a God of perfect justice? Everything God does is absolutely pure and perfect. He never makes a mistake. And we should worship him because of that. And then we can live our lives as believers with no fear of God because in the end, God wins. And while in this life, yes, we're going to experience a lot of healthy doses of conviction. If you've trusted in Jesus, you're no longer condemned. And there's a difference between those two words. Conviction and condemnation, those are not the same word. Conviction's a gift that God gives to us so that we might increasingly surrender our lives to Jesus condemnation is filled with dread and hopelessness because it refers to being eternally separated from god you're invited to put your faith in the lord jesus christ and if you do you can be pardoned and reconciled to the just god of the universe for all of eternity what greater gift can you possibly ask for than that